Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. It's hard to believe, but this is our last episode of 2020. We're going to look back on some of the big stories of the year, the pandemic, the election, the racial justice protests this summer. And we're also going to talk a little bit about a recent incident in which the Charlottesville Police Department was accused of racial profiling. But first, we have some very exciting news about the COVID-19 vaccine. My name is Matthew Gillikin, and I'm a speech-language pathologist at University of Virginia Hospital. I was able to get vaccinated at 7 a.m. today on Wednesday. One of my job responsibilities here is working with sick patients to evaluate and treat how they swallow. And so that has resulted in me crossing paths with a number of COVID patients. I've probably worked with 30 or 40 COVID patients over the course of the pandemic. They identified folks who were considered higher-risk healthcare workers and definitely included anyone who works with or on the COVID unit. And since I spent some time on that unit, I was able to get vaccinated at 7 a.m. today on Wednesday. So I got here a little before 7 a.m. and walked over into the Education Resource Center, which is a building across from the main entrance to the hospital. There was a socially distanced line formed of probably about 10 people who were going to get vaccinated. And then we were all directed into different rooms where we got our vaccines just with one other person who was the vaccinator. They went through um, possible risks and just made sure that we understood the benefits and risks of the vaccine. Um, There was some literature that we could look through. There also had been information emailed out to us and information available on a UVA website. It was mentioned that I might have nausea or headache or fatigue, as well as some pain at the injection site for the first day or so. Um, But so far, about five and a half hours in, and I've, other than a slight soreness in my um, shoulder, I'm feeling just great. I did some reading on my own about the safety of it, but more than that, I looked to what some of the doctors here that I really trust were saying about the vaccine. And Dr. Tyson Bell has been someone who I've looked to all along for guidance. He's an ICU doctor, and he's also an infectious disease doctor, and um, he's someone I trust and who cares deeply for our community. And I've thought for a number of months, whenever he says it's time to get vaccinated, um, I'll get vaccinated. And so he got vaccinated yesterday afternoon, and I was happy to follow his lead. After you have both doses, do you expect to change your behavior regarding COVID precautions at all? Not at all for a while. Um, My understanding is that they don't yet know if someone who's vaccinated could give COVID to others. And so until that's clarified, I will definitely not be going out and about since I still do work with people who have COVID and even though I'm wearing good PPE all the time. Additionally, um, I have a wife and three kids and I want to keep all of them safe. And until all of them are vaccinated, until a large percentage of our community is vaccinated, I don't anticipate any significant changes in my behavior. He's a good example. The CDC recommends that we all continue to wear masks and follow social distancing guidelines even after we have received two doses of the vaccine. 
There are a number of reasons for this, but one is that it takes a few weeks for your body to build up full immunity even after two doses. Did you have any emotional reaction to getting this vaccine? I was just really excited. I think this is an exciting day in the midst of the pandemic really being at its absolute worst right now. The chance to get the vaccine and to have some hope in the midst of a really awful period right now. I'm really grateful and I'm, I'm grateful for everyone who put in the work to get these vaccines through and I'm grateful that there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. I just would encourage people to continue to stay safe, um, social distance, avoid unnecessary outings, particular indoor outings, and to recognize that this we're still going to be dealing with the pandemic in a very serious way for at least six more months. Um, and we just need to take the necessary precautions to keep ourselves and keep others safe. And we also just need to be realistic that this is just the very beginning of the end, and it's going to be a while till we're where we need to be that we can get back to doing our old routines. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. So recently, there's been a back and forth between some members of the community and the police department. And it's gotten pretty heated. Our video evidence refutes this baseless, race-baiting claim. And frankly, I and a lot of other people don't quite know what to make of it. Here's what we know. Back in October, a black man was walking through a predominantly white neighborhood to the Unitarian Universalist Church on Rugby Road. The man in question has asked people to stop contacting him about the incident. So we're not going to use his full name. We'll call him Mr. H. There were police around because there had been reports of burglaries, and a young resident had called 911 after seeing a black man walk across her property. 911. Hi, we have a man who's been loitering on our property and trying to break into houses and break into our neighbors, and he's on the property right now. Okay, so can you describe him for me? Um, yes, he is black, light skin, um, like medium height. At this point, there's some disagreement. A letter from the interim pastor of the Unitarian Universalist Church, the Reverend Linda Olson Peebles, claims that Mr. H was stopped by the police. The police claim that Mr. H reached out to them. Just as he reached the edge of the church property, a police car pulled up, and the officer asked what he was doing in the neighborhood. He flagged us down. He asked us to encounter him. We wouldn't have known any of these things had occurred um, unless Mr. Man engaged us. We were driving around. The police department released about 10 minutes of body camera footage, but it doesn't reveal who incited the whole incident. The footage starts when Mr. H and a police officer are already mid-conversation. Caller says a male broke into our neighbor's house previously, is on the property now. Black male, medium height, wearing all brown. I mean, he matches the description, brown shirt, yeah. But he flagged me down. Maybe 99%. I was driving by. And he's trying to tell you? That he walked, he, he said, they're, you're probably looking for me. This part is really important because the Charlottesville Police Department has a history of stopping black residents at much higher rates than whites. 
Between September 2018 and January 2020, a black person was stopped by police 397 times. This is more than half of the police department's overall stops in the same time period. And this is even though only about 18% of city residents identify as black or African American, according to 2019 census data. For many residents, this disparity constitutes police harassment, especially given that 58% of those stopped were released without charges. So essentially they were stopped even though it was determined that they did nothing wrong. We may never know who started this interaction between Mr. H and the police. But it's clear that Mr. H did not find the interaction to be a pleasant one. It's hard to convey through the audio of the body camera footage because Mr. H has difficulty speaking, and he communicates with the police largely through gestures and written notes. But the interaction escalates. My thing is, if that, but here, look, if that's what you want to believe, that's what you can believe all day. That's fine. And I'm not telling you that you're wrong. And I'm not going to keep arguing with you about it. And you're trying to push this race thing that it's not. And I'm tired of hearing that. It has nothing to do with race. They just had their house broken into by somebody who came from the same direction that's fitting the same description. We are working multiple larcenies. And you want to argue with me, and I'm telling you exactly what it is. Again, it's easy to understand why a black man in a white neighborhood might be nervous and get agitated in this interaction. In November, the Charlottesville and University police violently detained a black man on the corner and broke three of his ribs. In July, an unhoused Latino man in need of medical attention was thrown to the ground by a police officer who kicked him and used a chokehold to pin him down. Thankfully, this incident did not escalate into violence, and it's unclear whether it was an incident of racial profiling. It is clear by the radio transmissions, by the 911 calls, that this is not a case of someone walking while black and being harassed on Rugby Road. And Mr. H has made it clear that he would like to put the incident in the past. So um, I received a letter, and, and Lieutenant Gore also received a letter from him as well. Mr. In his letter has basically said, leave him alone. He did not ask for this to be brought into this light, and no one was leveraging his voice on his behalf. And so at the press conference last week, it was clear that the conflict was no longer really about Mr. H, but rather a conflict between the Unitarian Universalist Church pastor, Reverend Peebles, and the police department. Reverend Olson Peebles, the Unitarian Universalist congregation in Charlottesville, Allegations were irresponsible and preyed upon national headlines in order to gain the spotlight. Her social media campaign regarding our, our interactions with Mr. were public and unfounded attacks on CPD and CPD officers. This should not be tolerated by this community. It, in fact, directly led to an editorial in the Cavalier Daily that called for the firing of all officers involved, as well as numerous advocacy groups, clergy, and UVA students suggesting the same. There is an aspect of this complaint to which I wholeheartedly agree with Reverend Olson Peoples. Action and accountability are needed. The call to apologize or to be terminated for their actions should start with Reverend Dr. Linda Olson Peoples and their board members who all signed off on this. Police Chief Brackney went through the Reverend's letter and refuted each claim point by point. And then in response, Chief Brackney's claims were refuted point by point by the Defund the Police Charlottesville organization. Just about everyone involved agrees that Mr. H did not do anything worthy of punishment. 
Yeah, I just want to be clear that other than cutting through private property, did nothing wrong at all. Um, and Mr. is not a suspect and absolutely did nothing wrong that day. And we want to be sure that our officers know that so we can avoid this kind of contact. Yeah, I don't think he's breaking into stuff, but I'm pretty sure they did call on him because he walked through there. So the main question has become, was Mr. H racially profiled or not? And that's a question that we will likely never have the answer to. But regardless of what happened in that situation, we know that the Charlottesville Police Department does stop black people more often than white people. And we know that black people are much, much more likely to be stopped by the Charlottesville Police Department than white people. And we know that the vast majority of those black people stopped were doing nothing wrong. I think we've also learned that there might be better ways for white people to participate in efforts to hold the police department accountable. According to the police department's own data, Reverend Peebles was right to be suspicious about this encounter. But she wasn't there, and she didn't experience it. And as a result, she got some of the details wrong. And her efforts, while clearly well-intentioned, spiraled into a situation that appeared to have made things worse for Mr. H. But at the end of the day... Another black person in Charlottesville had another negative interaction with the police department, and the police department responded by vigorously denying that race had anything to do with it. Um, there was a black male on her porch. That's just a description. I mean, if it was a white male on her porch, it would have been a white male. And you're trying to push this race thing that it's not, and I'm tired of hearing it. It has nothing to do with race. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. In our final segment, we take a minute to reflect on a year unlike any other. Well, this is our last episode of 2020, and it has been quite a year. We're going to talk about COVID and some of the other stories you all have been covering this year. But first, our lives have all changed a lot. What's something either personal or professional that you think you'll take with you into 2021? Well, I've definitely learned that I can work in a confined space. I'm in what's supposed to be the pantry of my house that I've converted into an office and I've grown to like it and I don't think it will ever become a pantry again. I'm also looking forward to not having every meeting over Zoom. I miss talking to people face-to-face. At Charlottesville Tomorrow, we often, after work, go have dinner together or go to each other's houses, and just none of that really happened at all. And It's like something I, I really miss. So, like, I moved here, I started in June, so my relationship with Elliot has been a Zoom relationship. Like, I don't know how we would even interact if we weren't just these two boxes on a screen looking at each other. So Jesse doesn't know yet that Elliot is actually nine and a half feet tall. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about COVID-19. Can you tell us about a story that you reported that you think best represents the impact that COVID has had here in Charlottesville? We got a lot of help over the summer from a lot of freelancers. One of the people who helped us, Kate Hidalgo Bellows, she wrote a series on a lot of the workers in the hospitals here and their experiences during the summer where we were like really 
in the middle of things getting out of control and it stuck with me you're just like hearing their voices of how they feel and how their day-to-day work has been inside of the hospitals that was just something that we hadn't really been able to share until that point because of course they're busy and people are looking at the numbers and all these other things and no one really stopped for a second to think about like well how is that doctor feeling how is that nurse feeling how are these other people in the hospital how are they coping with this We've all seen public meetings move online. There were major changes to public education, voting, resource distribution. Do you all see any of these changes continuing after COVID-19 is no longer a major threat here? I hope that meetings stay broadcast online. What a wonderful way to reach so many people. It almost seems silly that before, you know, in many places, people had to physically attend these government meetings in order to know, you know, what was said and what was going on. So I think that that has been a wonderful change that now suddenly these meetings are broadcast far and wide. It just gives more people more access, which is always a good thing. Have more people been attending those meetings from what you all can tell? That's a hard thing to measure because there's been so many times that Charlottesville City Council Chambers have been filled to nearly standing room, but the participation of their virtual meetings have also been very large. I feel that there's been a lot of participation in other ways, like voting was made a lot easier this year, and that's something that I really hope that we keep doing. We did make the changes that you don't really need an excuse to vote absentee anymore because like the election day itself was such a hindrance because there was a point when I worked at a different news publication. Typically on election day, I was on the clock from when the polls opened to when they closed. So I had to find the excuses to vote absentee because I couldn't vote in person on election day. I'm very grateful that I don't have any children that I'm trying to ensure their education through all of this. Do you all see any big changes in education coming out of this? I think we've learned that virtual learning is possible, but it's not quite there yet. It might work in the future that if there is a snow day or a prolonged snow day that they can say, well, we could do a few things online just so you don't miss so many days out of learning, but doing it for an entire academic year, it just seems like there's just so many things that really need to be inside of a classroom. As many problems as have come up, I mean, the teachers and really the administrations do deserve a pat on the back for the mountain of work that they did to do what they have been able to do. So we've been talking for a couple years about the many Confederate statues around Charlottesville's downtown area, and this year we actually saw one of them come down. Could you all kind of give us an update on that process? This year we started to see a long process finally come to fruition, at least partially, because we saw Arbor was able to take down its Confederate statue, but it seemed like this question of why the statues were there and what we can do about them started in Charlottesville, and it gathered momentum and made it into changing state law. And it's just weird that it happened this year with so much going on because of COVID, so you had the virtual event of Arbor taking his statue away, and then also... Some of the aspects of the suit in Charlottesville about its Confederate statues still aren't resolved, and part of that is because there have been delays because of COVID restrictions. So it's been interesting to see this all play out in this year, and it's also very interesting to see that it's not quite over in the city 
that started it all. You have locations like Richmond has taken the majority of their statues down. The city of Fredericksburg had a discussion about the slave auction block and removed that. And now we're just waiting to see what happens with the two in downtown Charlottesville. Yeah, I think that's really striking. I think it was in July, right, that the state of Virginia passed the law that allowed localities to take down these Confederate statues. Because before that, believe it or not, a locality by Virginia state law did not have the right to remove any sort of Confederate war memorial, whether they owned it or not. But like Elliot was saying, what's so fascinating about this is that it still hasn't made it to that statue yet and the other Stonewall Jackson statue around the corner from it. And the consensus is that now, yes, the city can remove its statue, but there's other legal questions raised in this lawsuit, namely over who's paying for the legal fees. So until that all gets resolved, this injunction still exists and these statues remain. And that's a story we will continue to follow into 2021. So I asked you all to send me some of your favorite articles from the past year, and one was your series, Jesse, about Albemarle County and the Freedom of Information Act. Can you tell us about that series? What kicked it all off? I believe it was our reporter, Billy, who requested emails or some sort of other documents from the Albemarle County Public Schools shortly after I arrived. And Albemarle County Public Schools responded to his request that because of the pandemic, they no longer had to follow the state's FOIA response deadlines. And he shared that with me. I was newly arrived. and I read it and thought, what? I was perplexed. I was puzzled. I didn't understand how the pandemic could enable a county school system to not follow state law that way. And so that is really what kicked off the series. My first story was just examining why that was. And what we found was that earlier, when Albemarle County passed an ordinance that all counties and cities did to kind of define how they were going to operate during the pandemic in March, they had included in that a provision that said they didn't have to follow state FOIA deadlines. It was my thought at the time that... I wasn't sure that they were allowed to do that, that the law that they cited gave them that authority. And so we just raised the issue in that initial story. I called several FOIA legal experts and also reached out to the county to try to understand why they had done it this way and wrote a story basically defining the issue. Elliot and I talked about this issue a lot. We didn't really want to leave it just at that initial story because the more we looked into it, the more we were pretty convinced that the county didn't have the right to sidestep state law in this case. So we enlisted the help of the University of Virginia First Amendment Clinic to try to just see what our options were. We had several FOIA requests at that point outstanding with the Albemarle County Public Schools that weren't being filled. And because there was no deadline in the county anymore, we weren't sure that they were ever going to be filled. There was no guarantee. So on our behalf, the First Amendment Clinic lawyers sent the county a letter basically explaining why that ordinance was unlawful and why the county didn't actually have the legal standing to opt out of the state's FOIA laws. After that letter, our FOIA request was filed pretty quickly, but the ordinance remained, the law remained, and that just kind of left us stumped. 
at that point, as a news organization, you know, it's our job to really advocate for the public's access and ability to access their government. The Freedom of Information Act is really the main tool we all have, both as journalists and just as citizens, to really know what government is doing. It guarantees that we can see all meetings. It guarantees that we can see all documents produced by our government. And having a deadline for responding is really what gives that act teeth. Because if there's no deadline, in order to opt out of that, all you have to do is just never respond. And that's not to say that's what we thought that Albemarle County was doing, but in principle, that's what happened. And we didn't want that precedent to stand here. We didn't want it to stand in Virginia. So at that point, our options were either sue them, or there's actually another route where you can ask the state's attorney general to issue an opinion. You know, the attorney general is the attorney for the state. So his opinion has a lot of weight and there's a formal process for that. We aren't allowed to ask, but there's a whole list of people who can, including our local delegates and senators. So we called our local delegate, Sally Hudson, and explained the situation and asked if she would ask the attorney general to issue an opinion on this. And she did. And he did. And his opinion was agreed with our initial thought that a a county cannot opt out of state FOIA law. Once that opinion came down, Albemarle County adjusted its FOIA ordinance to remove that deadline waiver. So you've already talked a little bit about why FOIA is so important. Why do you think the series stands out to you in a crazy standout year? With everything being virtual, it stood out to me because people couldn't just walk into the county office building or in the city hall to get some of this information. So it was just really critical that stuff still came out in a timely fashion. We keep saying unprecedented times, but it was such an unprecedented time that we suspended or modified a lot of things, but we can't suspend the free flow of information in the name of safety because that's not a valid reason to not get this information out. There are safe ways to do that, and a lot of things are virtual, so for a lot of these requests, it was just a matter of just pulling up a file. You can still do that without endangering anyone's life. Well, and the Freedom of Information Act already provides for situations where you might not be able to get a requested record on time. There's several things that a government can do if someone requests a record that they can't safely produce. So there was really no reason to remove a state deadline like this. And you know, for me, if I get really philosophical about it, A journalist has a lot of roles, but one of our big ones is we are the fourth estate. Our job is to be a watchdog over government. Our whole system was designed this way. We have the First Amendment, the freedom of the press, in order to safeguard this beautiful system that we have. When we see situations where that access, that freedom of information is being blocked or hindered in some way, it's our job to step up and say, no, you can't do this. You have to be open to your citizens. And that's exactly what we did. And I'm so proud of this organization for really doing that and for backing us up and seeing this through. Y'all recently got some really exciting funding. Can you tell us about the Charlottesville Inclusive Media Project and what your goals are? The Charlottesville Inclusive Media Project is a partnership between Charlottesville Tomorrow, Vinegar Hill Magazine, and my humble opinion, 
talk show, as a radio talk show, it came out of this seed of an idea that grew over the course of about a year because we were having similar conversations about so many times any piece of journalism just doesn't do justice to especially communities of color and also low wealth communities which definitely aren't the same thing but you'll get things where you only hear about stories of black people if it is like some sort of charity doing like putting out back to school supplies or if they're was a crime in their neighborhood, and that's not everyone in those neighborhoods. There's so many other stories that need to be told, and there's also just things that are being left out or where you don't hear, like, what a city council decision might mean for these people of color or how they can get more information or be better informed about some of these decisions before it reaches the point that the vote is taken. That's part of what we want to do is just to extend that information sharing in both directions to make certain that so many people in the Charlottesville area are better informed about things and learn how things operate in the city and how they can better get a seat at the table and also to show to people that there is a whole wealth of information about communities of color and also low-wealth communities in the Charlottesville area that's not just what you typically hear and see or what immediately comes to mind thank you all so much and i hope you have a really restful couple weeks coming up (laughs) thank you as always it's been a pleasure yeah it's great being back on again it's been like you said it's been a while we missed you elliot (laughs) and we'll talk to you all again in the new year Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our production assistant is Jiho Kim. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard.